Uh, last week, Pastor Doug began assembling some of the pieces of the puzzle of the book of Judges that we've laid out over the past several weeks, and he began putting those together for us so that we could see how they work together to tell a story. And so what we've seen so far with these different pieces of the puzzle is that they're coming together to tell a story about God, about God and his people over the span of about 400 years of history. Now, the narratives in the book of Judges are arranged geographically. You can see on this map that Pastor Doug put up last week, they're arranged geographically by their tribes and the allotment of land that God gave them in their sending base place. And so we start uh, down in the south here with Othniel from Judah, and then from there we move to Ehud, and he's from Benjamin, and then we move to Deborah, which we'll be coming back to in a couple weeks from Ephraim, and then we have Gideon from the tribe of Manasseh, Jephthah from Gad, and Samson from Dan, and all of these judges are judging, and these stories are taking place over these 400 years, and uh, none of the events or the crises or the oppression that are happening in the book of Judges should be seen as local or limited, so there's overlap in geography and time. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to zoom in on another one of those sub-stories as we look at the story of Gideon. So this morning, we are just going to stay focused in Judges chapter 6, and more than just hearing a story about Gideon, we're going to hear a story about the God of Gideon and who he reveals himself to be. And then next week, we're going to see Gideon enter into two very different battles in two very different ways as we look at Judges chapter 7 and 8. Now, Last week, Pastor Doug gave us a running start into Judges chapter 6, and so what I want to do this morning is just highlight a couple of the really important details that are going to be really helpful for our text this morning. Pastor Eric just read it, verses 1 through 6 describe the setting. The people of Israel are being overpowered by Midian. They were driven from their homes. They were hiding in caves and strongholds in the mountains. It says, whenever the people would plant their crops, the people of Midian would move in and come and destroy all of it. They would take all of it for themselves. They would devour the land, leaving no sustenance and no livestock. Now, they're described in these six verses as locusts, locusts that enter into the land and lay it to waste, and then they leave the land, rendering it useless to sustain life. Now, I, I don't know about you, but there are sometimes when I'm reading passages in God's word, and I can read through these six, 10 verses, and just like, okay, then what does verse 11 say? And I'm not really thinking about what was just described in the last 10 verses. I'm not really thinking about the reality that what these 10 verses are describing is everyday life for seven years for an entire people. Real people, just like you and me, that were going through this. Like day 365 came, and it wasn't over because they got up on day 366, and it was happening again. And day 367, and on and on and on and on, this was their existence. This experience that's being described here, uh, I think for most of us, and praise the Lord, stands so far out of what we have ever experienced. And so I think it's just so important for us that we really just feel the weight 
of what these verses are describing. So imagine with me for a moment that you have been driven from your home, that you're no longer allowed to live there for fear of your life, and so now you're living in some desolate, secluded area in a shelter. You're hungry, you're poor, you're tired, and every moment contains the threat of death, either death from starvation or from the invading enemies. It's really easy to breeze past these verses without giving thought to the fact that this is describing real life for real people. This is talking about real men, real fathers, real husbands who were looked to by their wife and their kids to provide for their families and wondering every morning when they get up, will I have enough to provide or will I have to continue to watch my family waste away before my eyes? Real people who felt the real pangs of hunger. Real people who felt that constant feeling of crippling fear. And so what happens? These people, in the midst of this situation, they cry out to God for help. And what does God do? He sends them a prophet. Why? Why does God send them a prophet? Here the people are in the midst of this miserable set of circumstances and they call out for relief from God and instead God sends someone to preach. Like why would God do this to his people? See up to this point in the book of Judges, every time that God's people have cried out to him for deliverance, what has God done? He sent them a deliverer. This time they say, God deliver us and he says, prophet. Why the change in what God has done so far? I think the answer is this. It's because he is merciful. I think God sends his people a prophet in Judges chapter 6 when they cry out for deliverance because he's merciful. Now what is mercy? Mercy is the goodness of God shown to people in the midst of their miserable plight. Mercy is the goodness of God shown to his people in the midst of their miserable plight. Now, I think from these first several verses in Judges chapter six, we would all agree that they are in the midst of a miserable plight. This is where they find themselves when they cry out to God. Life is in shambles, and God looks upon them in their destitute and hopeless situation, and he acts. See, more than giving them just temporary relief from oppression, God wants them to understand why they were experiencing this oppression. Is this to say then that every time we experience hardship in our lives, it's because we are in the midst of sin and God is just waiting for us to get the message? No, I don't think that's what Judges chapter six is telling us. But is it true to say that God is at work in the midst of all our miserable situations? I think the answer is absolutely yes. John Piper has said that God is always doing 10,000 things in our life and you and me may be aware of about three of them. So God has always, 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 say always, always, always been merciful to his people and he always will be. God loves to display his goodness to his people in the midst of the hard circumstances of life. 
And sometimes, hear this, sometimes the most merciful thing that God can do when we are experiencing the hardship of life is not to provide us escape from that circumstance, but is to provide us endurance in the midst of that circumstance. You see, if we would truly believe that God is who he says he is, and we would believe that all that God has promised us in his word are true promises that we can bank on, then we could stand in the midst of the fiercest storm and in the middle of the hardest times in life, we could not only cling to, but also raise the banner of God's mercy. God is always merciful to his people. And if that's the spot that you find yourself in this morning and it's like, this is just hard, whatever I'm going through right now, this is the truth that you need to hear from God's word. God is merciful. And if you are his, he has promised to show you his goodness in the midst of your miserable plight. So brother or sister in that situation, your God is merciful. And brother or sister in Christ, not in that situation, your God is merciful. And so the stage is set for us as we now enter into the Gideon narrative this morning. As we enter into our text, we do so knowing right from the very start that God is merciful. Gideon's God is merciful. The God of Israel is merciful. The God that we've come to worship this morning is merciful. He is merciful. He is. Pray with me, Father. We rejoice in your mercy this morning and we come now to your word knowing that this too is mercy from you, that we would have this. And so I would pray that you would continue to show us your goodness. God, speak to us. Let us see more of you. That's what we want in Jesus' name. Amen. Read with me, please, in Gideon 6, starting in verse 11. We'll read through 13. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon's first introduced into Judges chapter 6. And what is he doing? He's hiding in the wine press from the Midianites. So if the Midianites see him with the food that he has, they're going to come in and take it. So there he is in the wine press hiding the food so that his family would have something to eat. And the angel of the Lord appears to him. And the very first thing that the angel of the Lord declares is that the Lord is with him. The angel shows up and says, the Lord is with you. And what does Gideon say? Uh, How can you say that the Lord is with us? Like, angel of the Lord, open your eyes. Don't you see this situation that we're in? Don't you see what's happening to me right now? Where is God in the middle of all of this? Why has God not done anything if he's really with us? Sir, you are mistaken 
The Lord is not with us. The Lord has forsaken us. Now, before we talk about all these questions that Gideon has, we have to see how misguided they are from the very start. The angel of the Lord shows up and says, God is with you, and Gideon says, uh, no, he isn't, which is not a good conversation, by the way, to have with the angel of the Lord. Gideon says, no, he isn't, and then you look at verse 14 and just scan it real fast, and it's almost like Gideon asks all these questions, and then the angel of the Lord totally ignores every single one of them. Why? Why does he do that? I think it's because the reader should already understand the answer to these questions. Now, I'm going to show a couple verses here from the book of Deuteronomy, and uh, when we look at these, they're in Deuteronomy chapter 28, and you'll just see how God's word all works together and just how crucial it is to have a grasp of all of God's word and what a beautiful thing it can be when you do. Uh, so here are these verses in Deuteronomy chapter 28, and just briefly, here's what's happening. Uh, the whole generation before them had died in the wilderness because of their unbelief in the Lord, and now as they're getting ready to enter into the sending base place... God is readdressing the new generation and reestablishing his covenant with them. He begins to outline, here are the blessings for faithfulness and obedience to the covenant, and here are the curses for disobedience, for covenant unfaithfulness. And that's where we pick up. The first one is Deuteronomy 28, 25. It says, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Deuteronomy 28, 29. And you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. The hand of Midian overpowered, oppressed Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds Hmm. You shall build a house, Deuteronomy 28, 30, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit, Judges 6, 3. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. Deuteronomy 28, 31. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face. You shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. And they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land, leave no sustenance, and no sheep or ox or donkey. Deuteronomy 28, 33 through 34. A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and of all your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually so that you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see. That's a good summary of what we've seen. Deuteronomy 28, verse 38. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locusts shall consume it. Judges 6, 5. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number and lay waste the land. Deuteronomy 28, 43. The sojourner who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. Judges 6, 6. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. Deuteronomy 28, 45 through 48. 
all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. He will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Judges 6.10, I am your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites, but you have not obeyed my voice. So why does it seem like all of Gideon's questions go unanswered? It's because these questions have already been answered in God's word. The angel of the Lord comes and proclaims, Gideon, the Lord is with you. And what Gideon thinks, what it means for the Lord to be with him is like, it has to be an Egypt-like deliverance. And if God doesn't act in an Egypt-like deliverance from my situation, then it can't be true that God is with me. If God doesn't provide deliverance from the hard in life, then God can't be with me. So by sending a prophet in Judges 6, 1 through 10, he makes it clear and he makes all of these connections to the covenant. What is God doing? He's reminding his people that he is faithful. Gideon's God is a faithful God. The God of Israel is a faithful God. Your God, my God, is a faithful God. He is faithful. He is He is doing exactly, exactly what he said he would do if his people would not obey his covenant. Exactly what God describes in Deuteronomy chapter 28 is exactly what is happening in Judges chapter six. Except this time, God is not bringing them about to a complete destruction as he said in Deuteronomy 28. Why not? I believe it's because he is trying to, in the midst of these circumstances, draw them to repentance. God is being patient with his people. He brings in oppression from his enemies as he said he would, but he does not destroy them because he wants them to turn to him. He wants them to return his faithfulness to them with faithfulness to him. God is not out to squash his people. He's out to restore his people. Now, I am so glad that this describes the God of the Old Testament because now that Jesus has come, I can just do whatever I want and all I have to do is ask God for forgiveness afterwards. And he just like forgives me because that's what God does, right? Hebrews chapter 12 And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. God is treating you as sons. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, 
but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, our primary motivation for obedience to the Lord should absolutely be out of our love for the Lord. But it is not our only motivation. We should also fear the discipline of the Lord. It too is a very useful motivation and a very good gift from God. Why is it a good gift? Because there are some times where we just might not be feeling the love where we might not be feeling so lovey-lovey towards God, and in those times, we need God to be telling us that he will discipline us. Why? Why would God discipline us? Because he's faithful. Because he who began a good work in you will bring it about to completion. He's more committed to it than you and I are. He's faithful, and he'll be faithful to discipline us, but in the midst of his discipline... He is merciful. He is merciful and faithful. He is. Verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, Gideon, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, How can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. The Lord said to him, but I'll be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. God reassures Gideon that he can, in fact, do what he's called him to do, that he can go and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian, and it's because God himself is the one who is going to be with him. And yet Gideon still protests. He begins to list out all of the reasons why he's not God's guy for this situation. I'm the least guy in the weakest clan, God. You've come to the wrong house. You want to go visit so-and-so down there. God's response, but Gideon, I'll be with you. You see, this is the oft-repeated promise of God throughout scriptures. When Moses meets him and he resists his call, God says, Moses, I'll be with you. When Joshua is entering in to take Moses' role in leading the nation of Israel, what does God say to him? I'll be with you as I was with my servant, Moses. Later, when God's people are in exile in the book of Isaiah 43, God says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And repeated in Hebrews chapter 13, for you and me, God says, I will not leave you or forsake you. I will be with you. Brother or sister in Christ, God is with you. Gideon's God was with him, and your God is with you. He is with me. He is with you. And this is what Gideon needs to hear to step in obedience to God's call. You see, he can list out all of his inadequacies and make a list of every reason why he can't do what God is calling him to do. And God's response to every single line item that Gideon gives him is, yeah, I know, but I'll be with you. And Gideon, that's enough. God, I'm weak. Yeah, I know but I'll be with you and that's enough. God, I'm scared. Yeah, I know, but I'll be with you and that's enough. 
God, it's too big for me. Yeah, I'll be with you. And that's enough. God, it just seems like more than I can bear. Yeah, I know. I know it seems that way. But I'll be with you. And that's enough. God, I really just feel like I cannot go another day like this. Yeah, I know. But I'll be with you. And that's enough. See, there's nothing more that God can offer in any and every circumstance other than his very self. God gives you himself. And it doesn't answer all the questions about all the details of whatever you're experiencing. But God says, I'll be with you, and that's enough. So how does the story continue? Verses 17 through 24, essentially Gideon asks the angel for a sign. He says, well, stay here while I go and prepare an offering for you. He brings it out to him, and uh, Gideon sets it there before him. The angel of the Lord takes his staff and touches it, causes it to be consumed in fire, and then the angel vanishes. And like when the angel vanishes and fire comes up out of nowhere, Gideon's like, that was the angel of the Lord, and I'm in big trouble. Because like that was not the conversation I ever wanted to have with the angel of the Lord. And the Lord speaks peace to him and says, Gideon, do not fear. Peace be unto you. God speaks peace to him, tells him not to be afraid. And so Gideon builds an altar to the Lord. Pick up in verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day. He did it by night. Gideon builds an altar to the Lord in the first part of this narrative. And so what must happen? The altar to Baal must come down. He builds an altar to the Lord, so the altar of Baal must come down. Oh, and by the way, that altar belongs to his father. That's not great. So to give you an idea of what God is asking Gideon to do, it's kind of a mix between these two pictures up here on the screen. God is asking Gideon to go in and to tear down the idols among them. This first picture here is of Mecca and the Kaaba, and so it's like the whole people there all worshiped at that altar, just like in Gideon's tribe. And then over here is ancestor worship because the throne, the altar, belonged to Gideon's father. And so what God is essentially asking him to do is to march into either one of these two scenes and tear it down. Like, that's a really tall order, God. Really? Baal is the God of his father and the entire clan worships him. So this is no small thing, and Gideon recognizes that his very life is on the line with what God is asking him to do. Why such a demand? Why such a massive demand? I mean, God, didn't you realize that Gideon's been a little bit like timid this whole time? 
I think it's because the two altars cannot coexist. An altar to God and an altar to Baal are mutually exclusive. It is the clear message that God is communicating to his people in the book of Judges. The clear message that they must understand. It's exactly what the prophet said in Judges 6.10 where he brought him back to the covenant. I am the Lord your God and you shall not fear the God of the Amorites that are among you. God is declaring to Gideon that he is a jealous God. Gideon's God is a jealous God. Your God, my God, is a jealous God. He is jealous. In Joash's house, Gideon had grown up knowing about Yahweh, the God of Israel. How do I know that? Well, because his questions back in Judges 6.13 were, well, like, where about, what about all the stories from back in Egypt, what you did before? So Gideon knew about Yahweh, but he also grew up with an altar to Baal and an Asherah pole in his backyard. So in this case, it wasn't a wholesale rejection of God. It was just like, we'll do God and these other things. Hmm. So in this case, it is the worship of God combined with the worship of other small g gods. Now before we get too hard on Joash and his family, listen to this quote by one commentator. It says, the gods have not changed for human nature has not changed. And these are the gods that humanity regularly recreates for itself. What does it want? If it is modest, security, comfort, reasonable enjoyment, if ambitious, unbridled self-indulgence. In every age, there are forces at work which promise to meet our desires. Economic theories, career options, philosophies, lifestyle options, entertainment programs, all having one feature in common. <clears throat> they promise that they can make our lives better than we can make them ourselves. Yet at the same time, they appear amenable to our manipulating them so that we can get what we want without losing our independence. Here is the enemy among us, we say, but the world has crept in and controls our hearts. The God we've come to worship this morning is a jealous God, and if he is to be their savior, their deliverer, then Baal must go. It was true for Gideon, it was true for Israel, and it's true for you and me. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. So because God is merciful, faithful, with us, and jealous, he refuses to provide escape from a situation until he has brought about the good that he's assigned it to do. In this case, God would not simply give them relief from the Midianite oppression until he removed the heart condition that brought about the Midianite oppression, namely idolatry. Do you see the mercy of God in this? Do you see God showing his goodness to his people in the midst of their miserable plight? Whatever God causes or allows in your life that brings you closer to him is only mercy. Oh, and by the way, it's usually the hard things that God uses to bring us closer to him. It's usually like the really hard things that are God's mercy in bringing us nearer to himself, even if it's poverty, hunger, and oppression. If the Lord uses it for your ultimate and eternal good, hear me, it is only God's mercy. 
When you woke up this morning, if you did not wake up experiencing the full wrath of God, you are only experiencing the mercy of God. Me too. We will only experience mercy for the rest of 2016 and 2017. And until the Lord comes back, God's people will only experience God's mercy. Now, I love what God does here in Judges 6 because I think he gives us a glimpse of what he's talking about in the rest of scripture where he shows us how he can take any situation and bring about the good that he's assigned it to do. You see, God doesn't just defeat his enemies, but he subjugates them. So like in Romans chapter eight, verse 37, where it says that you are more than a conqueror. Have you ever thought about that before? Like what does it mean to be more than a conqueror in Christ? A conqueror would be pretty cool, but you're telling me I'm more than that. Uh, What does it mean? What does a conqueror do? A conqueror defeats their enemy. So then what does more than a conqueror do? More than a conqueror subjugates the enemy and forces the enemy to do good unto you. What does God command Gideon to do? He commands him to tear down the Asherah pole and to use the wood from the Asherah pole to offer a burnt offering unto him. Like what a beautiful picture that God can take any and every situation, even the worship of false gods, and use it to bring him glory and us joy. God is a jealous God. He will subjugate his enemies. Baal must go. He will not share his glory with another. The next morning, the people wake up and they notice that things look a little bit different over at Joash's house as the smoke is still rising. And they say, uh, looks like something happened there. Let's go find out. They see that everything's been torn down and they say, someone must die. Someone must die for defaming Baal. And so they make a search and an investigation and they find out it's Gideon. It's Gideon that must die. They show up at Joash's house and they demand that the father deliver his son into their hands. And what does Joash do? He says, well, if Baal really is a god, uh, he could probably handle it. Baal doesn't need you to handle his light work. He's got this. 633. The story continues now. All the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. Same story that we saw in Judges 6, 1 through 6. Midian's moving in again to lay waste the land. Only this time, something's different. What? Verse 34. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali and they went up to meet them. What's different this time? Gideon is clothed in the spirit of the Lord. The Lord who is sovereign, the Lord who is pursuer, the Lord who is warrior. The same spirit of the Lord that we've seen in Judges already who comes upon deliverers and delivers the nations from their oppression. Gideon, in the spirit of the Lord, gathers an army together to fight against the Midianites. Gideon asked the angel of the Lord for a sign before he tore down the altar of Baal. And now, Gideon has a new battle before him in fighting against the Midianites. And so he seeks another sign. The most famous part of the Gideon story, it's Gideon's fleece. And so now we're going to stop what we've been talking about and talk about decision making and the will of God. Because that's what we do with this passage, right? Like, on your way out this morning, you'll receive a little piece of Gideon's fleece for all of your big decisions. Oh, God, please help us. Uh, 
Gideon asks God for two signs to demonstrate that he really will save Israel by his hand. So he lays out a fleece and he says, okay, God, uh, this time I'm praying that there would only be dew on the fleece, but that the ground would be dry. And God, if you do that, then I'll believe that you're really in this. Gideon wakes up and wet fleece, dry ground. He says, okay, God, let's do this again. But this time, let's do dry fleece, wet ground. Goes to sleep, wakes up the next morning. God does exactly as Gideon had asked. So what is this section really about? Many commentators criticize Gideon harshly for all the tests that he puts before God, and I get it. You see, God has commanded his people not to test him, and here it is, Gideon even seems to recognize that it's not a good idea. In verse 39, he says, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test you one more time with the fleece. I'll be totally honest, I really don't know what's going on in all of this. But what we do know from the text, not making assumptions on our own, but what the text tells us is that Gideon asked God to do something, and what does God do? He does what Gideon asks, and we don't see a rebuke. Why? Because Gideon's God is gracious. Gideon's God is gracious. Your God is gracious. My God is gracious. He is gracious. He is. God's grace is his goodness given to those who don't deserve it. His goodness given to those who don't deserve it. God did not owe this to Gideon. God did not have to reveal more of himself to cause faith to rise in Gideon's heart, but he wanted to, and he did. God does not owe us a revelation of who he is. He does not owe us his word, and he certainly did not owe us Jesus, but in his grace, he gives to us all of these good gifts to reveal himself and to increase our faith. Another commentator says, Gideon then was not looking for little signs to help him make a decision. He was really seeking to understand the nature of God. He wanted to see that God really is sovereign over all other small g gods. You see, Gideon didn't have the Bible, and so he was asking God to reveal, him in, to reveal himself in such a way that would instill faith in his heart. It has absolutely nothing to do with decision-making. It has everything to do with asking God to reveal himself. Hebrews 1.1 Long ago, at many times and in many ways, like including a wet and dry fleece, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us, you and me, by his son. Gideon's request was for help to build up his faith by seeing a greater picture of who God is, and God graciously responded. When we make that same request, God graciously responds by pointing us to Jesus Christ. When we make that same request, oh God, would you increase my faith? He points us to Jesus Christ as the fullest and final revelation of his character and his purposes. And so this morning as we have gathered to build up our faith by worshiping Jesus Christ and by looking for grace in his word, we end our time 
by pointing to Jesus Christ. And one of my favorite ways to do that is by taking communion. So servers, if you guys would uh, please get in place. Spend the rest of our time this morning pointing to the grace of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. Next week, we're gonna be looking at how the Lord raises Gideon up to deliver his people. But this morning, we see in the story of Gideon pointers to our ultimate deliverer. Judges 6 is far more than just a story about Gideon and his fleece. It's a story about the God of Gideon. In this chapter, we see that God is merciful. He is. He shows his goodness to his people in the midst of their miserable plight. And he does that ultimately to you and me through Jesus Christ. Sin and the impending wrath that we deserve due to our sin is the most miserable of plights. But because God is merciful, he sent Jesus Christ. God is faithful. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for us. For one would scarcely die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone might dare even die. But God demonstrates his love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why would God do that? Because he's faithful. And in Genesis chapter three, he said he would. And now God is making good on his word and all of his promises in Jesus Christ. God is with us. He's with his children. It's his promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's with us now by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And when Christ returns, we will be with him forever. He is jealous. Now in Christ, he mediates a new covenant. And this covenant is not like that covenant reestablished in Deuteronomy 28. This covenant is one that the Lord will put into our minds and write on our hearts. And he will be our God and we will be his people. He will enable us to worship him exclusively because of the covenant that Jesus now mediates, I can wholeheartedly worship the Lord. God was jealous for our exclusive worship, so much so that he was willing to send Christ in order to secure it. And finally, he is gracious. He shows his goodness to us when we certainly do not deserve it. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. He gave Christ to redeem us. And so this morning, if that experience, the experience of this God, this merciful, faithful, with, and jealous, and gracious God is one that you've experienced through the person of Jesus Christ, if you have turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, then this morning we celebrate, yes, communion, celebrate, rejoice, and proclaim the death of the Lord until he returns. We increase our faith because of what God has shown to us in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, if that describes your experience with God Almighty, then this time is for you. And you can come up and take the bread and the cup. And after that, come sit back down and rejoice. Rejoice in the dying breath of Jesus Christ that brought you life. Rejoice in the deep love that the Father has for you. And then we'll take communion here in a moment together. And Father, we 
rejoice now and we lift up Jesus Christ to the highest place in this room and in our lives. And we simply say thank you for your mercy, for your faithfulness, for your presence, for your jealousy towards us, and for your grace in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.